Welcome to The Grid. I am your host, Jennifer Shahadi, and we'll be taking a 13 by 13 episode journey through every possible No Limit Hold'em hand, 169 hands in total, from aces to seven deuce offsuit. Each episode, I'll interview another top poker player or personality about their hand. Once a combo is taken, it's gone. So this podcast will become progressively more difficult as hands like ace-king are removed from the grid. Whether you spend hours poring over grids as you study poker, love to listen to hand history pods while grinding cash, or are just interested in absurd scavenger hunts, we're going to have some fun. You got the cards. Dealer, I'm feeling it hit me. Yeah, I got swagger. They see me, see me strutting. All sweating daggers. Believe it, I'm the real thing. But I gotta switch it on. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to The Grid. I am with Joshua Abadi, who is a poker player and former Scholastic Chess Champion. He's also the COO of Critical Mass Applications, a cooking iPhone app. He's been playing poker tournaments for just a few years, and he's had much success already, particularly in Australia. I first found out about Josh on the podcast, The Chip Race. Yes, uh, subscribe to that one too, guys. Where I discovered he was an evocative storyteller with many friends in common with me, and somebody who might dispel myths that younger generations of American poker players like to sit behind headphones and don't really like to talk at the table. So today, Josh has a hand for us with Queen Jack suited from the WSOP Colossus in his first year of playing tournament poker. Josh, welcome to the show. Thank you so much, Jen. I'm happy to be here. So tell us about this hand. Set it up for us. It was 2017? Yeah, it's basically, it's my first WSOP event ever. I'm three months into playing poker for a living. I just like quit my job teaching chess and uh, tutoring. And I didn't know a lot of theory at the time, but I was pretty nitty and I was pretty good at making people blow up, uh, which I guess is something I, I, I still specialize in. I don't know what it is, Particularly, I really pride myself on being friendly at the table. But for some reason, every once in a while, I just run into someone who just like hates the chattiness. And you can just tell that you're like under their skin. And it's amazing. Like some people just completely like explode and uh, donate their whole stack. Okay, that's a really fantastic combination to be super nitty and also get people to blow up on you. I mean, that that's really what we want. Now, um, tell us, it was in 2017 in the Colossus. So obviously that's a really great tournament. It's a $500 buy-in, right? Yeah, I think, yeah, 565 or whatever. And at what point in the tournament did this hand take place? So it was in like level two or three. I initially had Dennis Phillips on my table. Uh, and Dennis was one of the few people you know, who I'd watched on TV or whatever that I had met in poker at this point, uh, just had tournaments in Maryland because that's where I was living at the time in college. And uh, he's just like the nicest guy in the world. I really, really am just like such a huge fan. And he was so friendly and I got a picture from my mom. And it was very exciting at the time. Um, and we were chatting a lot and he got coolered really badly and got eliminated. And the whole time I noticed there's this guy on the table who was just like so sick of hearing my voice and just that, I don't know, he was just grumpy in a bad mood, like very much just there to have a bad time and kind of hoping everyone else has a bad time, I guess is uh, the way I'd put it. And it, it was something like 100, 200 blinds. We're talking, you know, really early, maybe with aunties. And I get dealt Queen Jack suited on the button on his big blind. And <laughs> I'm thinking, okay, you know, this guy's super tilted. It's probably gonna give me a lot of action. I'm going to just really exploit raise massive. We're obviously, we're really deep, uh, over 100 bigs deep or something. Or actually, you know, the WSOP stacks were shorter back then, but we're still quite deep because it's super early on. 
So I raised 5x <laughs> with Queen Jack suited. I don't know if I would advise this play anymore, but uh, at the time I was coming from like a 1 3 cash background. So I was very into just punishing with a really tight range and huge sizing. And it was good enough. I mean, it definitely got the job done. Uh, and, and he just snap calls out of the big blind. And he does kind of that uh, flick the chips in instantly frustrated snap call. So I was like, okay, great. You know, this is so far so good. And we get the gin flop, the queen, queen jack. Well uh, played. Yeah. <laughs> and he checks. And ordinarily, I like to balance my timings a lot. I think uh, I have a nature to kind of be imbalanced with my timing in general. So I sort of force myself to do it. But there are moments like this where I know that if you act quickly and you kind of egg the person on, it feeds the dynamic. And I figured like, all right, I, I kind of made my mind up. Like, I'm just going to, if I get there, I'm just going to bomb it and just try and like win his whole stack and he'll get as many bigs in the pot as possible. So I just bet full pot, even though I'm blocking everything. And like, I know it doesn't really make sense, but it's the kind of thing where I would definitely do it again. You know, like at the time I was very confident uh, it would work. And sure enough, he, he snap calls. I mean, he just takes his biggest nomination chip, flicks it in as fast as he can. And he's kind of, you know, grumbling at me, looking at me like this kid's betting so big. <laughs> Turn is a deuce. I mean, just irrelevant brick. He checks, and I just I keep it going, just full pot again instantly. And he instantly calls again. And the river is like a three or a four, just another brick. And he checks. And I stop on the river, and I think to myself, realistically, I, I can't bet big here again. You know, it's the river. Like, I can't get him to really, like, spaz it off in the same way. And he's never going to call. So I ask myself, you know, this guy, let's just play. At this point, I've won two pot size bets, which is completely unreasonable. Um, so I'm really happy with how the hand is gone. And I'm like, he probably just has, you know, an under pair for two pair that won't fold. Or maybe like some really hates me ace highs was my, uh, was my thought process. So I was deciding, like, how is it possible that I can get paid more here? And I decided to bet one big blind. And I have to say, I don't really do this a lot anymore, but I, I kind of want to start doing it more. I think it's oddly effective because sometimes they just call the extra big blind with something like, like ace high, which they would always fold to an actual bet. Uh, and sometimes it just really induces a raise from certain people. So sure enough, I bet one big blind. He looks at me and uh, am I allowed to swear on the podcast? Quick question. Oh, yeah, yeah, sure. This is the only time this has ever happened to me in a hand in my life. But he literally looks at me and says, fuck you, kid. I'm all in. <laughs> it's never happened to me before or since. And, you know, I was quite new to poker. So I was like, wow, like there's some really angry people. But I've had some negative experiences since then. And not even that it was that unpleasant. I thought it was pretty funny at the time because I'm just sitting there with the nuts. But I don't think I've met anyone who's like that openly aggressive in the middle of a hand. Like to say anything, let alone to specifically say fuck you, I thought was uh, was pretty unique. So uh, I obviously snap called. Some of my friends uh, tell me this is how you know poker players are heartless. They're like, oh, you should have slow rolled. And I'm just like, I don't know. I think at this point when I got someone's brain to completely explode, I just I, I own the justice of at least like snap calling and and making the pain quick, you know. So I snap call and he doesn't want to turn over his hand. Uh, but the dealer is like, oh, you have to you know, it's all in and call. You have to turn over your hands. It's uh, obviously a rule at the World Series. And I can't remember the exact combination, but I just remember he had like naked ace high, no draw, like ace six off or something um, for the pure spite float on the flop, float on the turn and shove river. Uh, and to this day, I think it's like one of the most amazing blow ups I've ever seen, even though it was in level two of a $500 tournament.
Wow, that's amazing. And when, let me, just to recap, when you bet one big blind, there was like 50 or 60 big blinds in the pot, yeah, right? Maybe even 70, because I raced so big pre. I raised like 5X pre, so there's like 11 bigs on the flop, and I bet pot and then pot. There's like, you know, almost, uh, it, it, we're super duper deep. <laughs> it, it, it was pretty unbelievable. So you bet one big blind, and you say you want to kind of do this more, but what do you think betting one big blind does uh, that maybe betting like something also outrageously small, like 10% of the pot? I mean, is there really a big difference? Maybe there is in this case, but like in yeah. other cases. It's tough to say. 10% pot is probably like the... If this is a weird thing to say, but the more GTO exploitative approach, you know, it's like the exploitative choice that at least you get some amount of pot in. But in my opinion, in live tournaments, there's just certain spots where specifically betting one big blind, people take it as like a personal insult. It's very interesting. Like overbetting is also very effective when you're young because people take it personally. They're like, oh, look at this you know, stupid kid in his 20s betting, you know, 2x pot, like, screw this guy. I don't know what it is about it. I guess just that it's uncommon or outside of sort of the, like, standard etiquette. Like, I always try and compare it in chess. You know, if someone, if someone like, plays an unusual move, you're never, like, offended. You're just like, oh, wow, that's an interesting move. I didn't really, like, calculate that. You know, I wonder if it's good. Um, but somehow in poker, there's, like, a unspoken etiquette of, you know, bets between, like, half pot and pot being the, the standard. And then, a quarter they're you know oh they're milking me and then if you go as low as one big blind it, it, it's just like it causes people's brains to totally fry for a split second at times and i think that can just be enough for them to donate so many big blinds once in a while that it can be worth it overall yeah that's so interesting it kind of reminds me of like a check raise being seen as rude in some cash games back in the day that like it it's it's like not what you're supposed to do like either check call or check fold man what are you trying to do and are you trying to trick me (laughs) i think i read something like it used to be illegal at the world series in the 1970s or something it was against the rules to check raise. Someone told me this this summer. Well, I definitely know that it's against the rules in like some like cash games and casinos. I, I actually did not realize that it was against the rules in the WSOP. I'll have to check on that. But yeah, that's, that's pretty. But, uh, you know, grapevine knowledge. First of all, um, shout out to Den- Dennis Phillips. He's from St. Louis, which is like my second home. So a great guy. Um, secondly, about this guy. I mean, I found sometimes that people, when they're running badly and they're not getting a lot of hands, they get irritated by like fun conversations. So I've certainly seen that where it's just like, they feel like they're not having a good day. So why should you be having a good day? Was that kind of dynamic going on? Was he like running badly or? Yeah, he, he was doing like the, uh, the I haven't gotten dealt a good hand in a while tilt, which I always think is the funniest one. It's just like, if I'm card dead in a spot where I'm not about to bleed out on chips, it's almost satisfying in a way. You're like, okay, I can sit here, gain information, you know, not risk anything, wait for good hands. But some people, when they just get bad hand distribution for an hour or two, which is really not a lot of hands, right? We're talking like 50 hands. You know, I mean, it's a a half an hour of uh, one table online or something. So it's amazing how quickly people get frustrated of of sitting there. So yeah, I, I don't recall the guy super well, I know it's sort of like a middle-aged guy. That tends to be the demographic that tilts off to me the most. I'm not really sure why. I think maybe they find me a little bit loud and irritating as a general population. But then, you know, you get like, uh, you always get the people who surprise you are super nice too, so. I don't know. It's, it's tough to say if it's just confirmation bias. Well, I think one of the reasons people get frustrated running badly for like an hour or two, which like, as you said, 
isn't really a lot of hand sometimes, especially depending on the speed of your table, is because there. I think there's like some validity in that because the reason they're doing that is because other people are making judgments on a small number of hands. So they feel like they're being labeled as nitty and they might be because people might be making those judgments even with a really small sample size. Yeah, I, I definitely think that's true. Some people feel like they lose their image or something. I don't know. It, it's a weird phenomenon. I, I say like, uh, I ask my mom about this a lot. She's a doctor and I like to ask her about sort of brain performance related random questions when, when I encounter them. And one of them is like, I noticed when I was young in chess tournaments, especially in like uh, two hours for 40 moves, you know, the SD1 uh, time control where the game could be six hours, I would get bored at times. Even though I overall was like interested in the game, I found that I would just get bored because I was just young and didn't have a super long attention span. And that when I got bored, I would start autopiloting my calculation and blunder a lot more. And I think poker is kind of like that too. Like if you get checked out mentally, you can stop thinking about your range and your opponent's range and just sort of start doing things based on like whatever your autopilot perception of the game is. And no one ever really plays well like that. Right. I totally agree. Although I think that especially if you play tournament poker, you're going to find yourself in that zone sometimes. So you want to make sure like that your mistakes are not as massive as other people's when you're in that kind of like exhausted autopilot zone. Like Jarrett Tender talks about like raising the level of your C game, which I think is a valid way to think about it. For my students, that's always the first thing I encourage. Just like be tight, learn how to get value and just do not punt. Because if you just don't punt, and honestly, I'm very guilty of being a punty person by nature myself, but I really just had it beat out of me by like better players just telling me to stop repeatedly and then me sort of being harsh on myself, like I have to stop doing this because it just costs you so much. So you're a poker coach as well? Uh, a little bit, yeah. I've had a couple of students. I, I honestly have been wanting to have more, but I didn't really want to coach people until I felt like I had some more results these days i'd be like more comfortable doing it not that results really should matter as much as people value them but you you know it's like no one really wants to be a chess coach if there are 1500 even if there's a market for it for beginners a lot of people want to be like a little bit stronger not that they need to you could be an amazing coach at 1500 if you're an experienced teacher but i guess it's uh, i don't know maybe it's a sense of like personal pride i wanted to feel like i was good enough at poker that if people took my advice they would objectively turn a profit or i wouldn't want to charge the money for it and how do you feel the differences between poker coaching and chess coaching? I try and make it similar because I started coaching chess when I was 15. Uh, and then I started SAT tutoring the year after. So I've been doing like this my 10th year of private teaching. And it's definitely like, I don't want to say my passion, but in terms of professional work, it's the only thing I've ever really done until this startup. And I really like the one-on-one -on -one teaching environment. I think I have a lot of kind of nostalgic memories of my chess coach and my guitar teacher when I was younger teaching me things and just being mentors in my life. And I find that in the one-on-one -on -one dynamic, you can really get inside someone's head, see what it is that they're struggling with, how to help them through that, kind of like view it from their perspective. Um, so I try and like have a clear theme for the lessons for both, you know? Because chess, it's very easy to do thematic lessons. You can do a specific opening or a specific tactic or just like a, analyze a certain game and pick like a theme you want to look at. Poker, it's a little trickier because you have to kind of figure out what they understand. It's more clear in chess what your student understands and doesn't understand because if they you've never taught them things about controlling the center, then they're not going to know most of the time. But in poker, some people intuitively understand some concepts, but it's never been verbalized to them. So they maybe don't fully grasp it. So it can be a little trickier. In chess, I try and teach people to play good moves 
Uh, whereas in poker, I try and teach people an effective strategy since money is on the line. In chess, if you wanted to give someone premature results when they were young, you could just teach them to like castle early and develop pieces and play like super safe. And that would probably be very effective. But instead, I'd rather teach them an opening I think they'll like. Whereas in poker, even if I know my student wants to be super aggressive, in fact, almost especially if I know they're aggressive by nature, I'll teach them to be like the biggest nit in the whole world because it'll cost them less money to get started. They'll lose less, you know, it's just better at one three and the starting stages of poker. And then as they make money, then they can improve their post-flop skills organically. What about speech play? Because it sounds like you do a lot of talking at the table just to enjoy yourself, but there's also some strategic elements to that, isn't there? Yeah, it's definitely a lot of both. Um, I will say I never teach speech play or even advocate it to any of my friends. I think a lot of it boils down to your actual personality. And if you're not the type of person who wants to talk at the table, forcing yourself to do it for specifically strategic regions, reasons rather, is gonna be kind of brutal. But since I'm bored a lot of the time, and I just like meeting new people at the table, and P.S., that's been like the best choice I ever made in all of poker. I've met so many awesome people just by being chatty at the table. But then also, as you're chatting, if you're an observant person, you start to notice, oh, this person looks frustrated. This guy looks like he doesn't like me, you know. Uh, or you just see some people, maybe they'll soft play you if you're friendly to them. One thing is like I, I studied Chinese in college, so sometimes if I find somebody who speaks mostly Chinese and not as much English, uh, I can converse with them and that's fun for me. I get to practice and kind of challenge myself a little bit. Um, but also I, I do find the byproduct is largely I get soft played against because it's, you know, it's fun for them as well. And they, they sort of don't want to eliminate you. I've even had people not call my jams, which I jam quite wide by nature in tournaments. I've had people not call and tell me it's because they don't want to eliminate me. Like, oh, normally I'd call, you know, I have Queen Jack or whatever, but uh, I'm just going to let it go. And you print so many big blinds like that. And you, you meet nice people, so it works out for everyone. I can go both ways with a speech play, but I'm interested to hear more about it. Do you actually talk during the hand a lot or is it more like between hands? I almost never talk during hands. I would say less than 1% of the time. I used to try, but I noticed that it was impossible for me to focus on my range and my opponent's range and actually like trying to think about theoretical poker. Because at the end of the day, that's so much more important overall. And also do speech play mid-hand. And I found that I was pretty imbalanced with what I was saying. Like I'll literally chat with someone up to the second that I look at my cards and then go completely silent. And I think that that switch also sometimes uh, works as a speech play almost. People are very thrown off. A lot of people try and make me laugh because they think it's funny just like how dramatic the change is. And then it's the second the hand ends, you know, if I bet and they fold, I just instantly continue where I left off with what I was saying. Sometimes it's tricky, like you do the harsh transition and you have aces and you're sitting there like, oh man, I hope that wasn't too sudden, you know, like, because people do often perceive that as strong when you suddenly go silent. But what's nice about it is I do it balanced. So, you know, if I have like seven, eight suited and I'm sitting there, I'm like, okay, I'm gonna open this people perceive it as generally stronger. So that's kind of a spot where you can go a little bit wider, but I try not to overdo it. You know, I, I, I try not to overthink things. I more take the speech play opportunities as they come, as I notice them, if that makes sense. 
I find um, if I'm having great conversations in poker and I get a hand that is maybe in a mixed range, not like aces where I'm playing it, no matter how great the conversation is. But when you're when you have a hand that maybe sometimes you're folding, sometimes you're flatting, sometimes you're raising suited ace in some spot, right? We can yeah. imagine there's there's some hands in your range preflop that you might do all three with. And then if you're in the middle of a great conversation, it's even more important that you have your preflop strategy just like really, really well rehearsed because otherwise you could be giving away info. It's very tempting. You know, you have like king queen off under the gun or something and you're in the middle of a conversation and you're like, ah, screw it. And you just fold. I think the thing to do is actually to go wider in that spot if you're going to do anything, just because in general, it's perceived either as nothing at all or strong. But I think I'm probably guilty of just overfolding if I'm really enthralled also. Because at the end of the day, like you're a person and, you know, sometimes I feel like I'm too loose anyway these days. You know, like young and aggressive. So it's just like, oh, do I really need to be opening this here? Like maybe I'll take this as an opportunity to chill out for once. <laughs> but but I think all in all, it's like probably your frequency is not changing too much. The one thing you don't want to do is flinch and then open. Yeah, it's terrible. Have you done that by accident, you think? Like made some kind of like negative flinching type of motion and then like opened because you realize you might get more credit because you're in the middle of a combo? A lot of times. And then there's been times where I do it and then I look at someone who's staring right at me and becomes immediately evident that they picked up on the read. And you're just like, okay. And then you have to navigate through the hand. It's like usually a good rag that picks up on it. So you're like, all right, I hope this guy just folds pre. And sometimes they three bet you and then you have to four bet like some percentage of the time and act like it was a fake read. You get yourself into this weird leveling war. But in general, if I feel like I get caught red handed and I face aggression, I just give up. I think you can go down like a really dangerous rabbit hole by trying to fight back too much. Yeah, and it's always hard to figure out what people really picked up on. You know, it's funny because on the Chip Race podcast, you talked about Fabiano Caruana, a friend of yours, who yeah. is the number two chess player in the world. I currently am in St. Louis where Fabiano was playing against one of the top players in the world, Jan Napomniachi, and Jan had this like really brilliant win. Um, Fabiano had just played a move that was a mistake, but looked like a good defensive move. So he got up from the board and he was just, you know, walking to get a drink in between moves, which is something for those of you who don't play chess, you're allowed to do with these long time controls. And suddenly, like, it hit him. There was this, like, absolutely brilliant retreating move that his opponent could play to sacrifice. So it was like this thing where it was like pure aggression and then a quiet move. Like, just the most sensational victory idea. And... Uh, so what do you do then if you're Fabi? Because, you know, Fabiano is not a poker player. If he goes back to the board and sits down, his opponent could just like realize like, oh my God, I have a win. Yeah, I will say this. Uh, we played a bunch of Avalon like a couple years ago uh, when he was in New York for the, uh, the previous world championship that he was not in. And uh, yeah, he's like a brilliant calculator, but you know, not one for bluffing so much. But I, I think in that spot that you can kind of go two ways. You either have to sit down and act like nothing is wrong at all. Just sit there calmly and drink your water and, and just totally kind of check out or just go back to your normal like sort of calculation look. Or you have to walk around, maybe even go to the bathroom. But I don't know, it's tough. Every time I leave in that spot, I feel like I'm giving it away. But you don't want to sit back down either. So I feel like you just have to stall. Make it seem like you're really dehydrated, you know, like just buy time however you need to and act like nothing is wrong. Yeah, he, he sat down 
Jan did not see the move. But later, Fabi in the interview said that like his trainer was telling him that, um, you know, he could see it all over his face and that he was just like so relieved that Jan was, I guess, engrossed in the position and so didn't catch anything from Fabi's demeanor. But I, I thought it was hilarious because like that actually happened to me once. I had a very memorable situation where the same thing happened to me and I just got up and I didn't sit back down until I saw like the, the uh, turn was on me and my opponent had not made the winning move. Yeah, I've had a, a few of those. I don't know if I like should admit this, but I was something like 13 years old at the time. But uh, back in the scholastic days, I was a big fan of what uh, my team liked to call the coffee house trick, which is kind of like subtle psychology bluff, I guess, where like I would play a move that I thought was like a winning tactic. And then after I played it, I would realize it's a blunder and I'd be like, oh, crap, you know, I had messed up. Uh, but since I was young and we're all low rated and you're playing other people who are young and low rated and prone to making a lot of mistakes, I would kind of like play it off. You know, I would do a little bit of acting. You, you can't overdo it. One, because I think that's just like bad sportsmanship. And two, because it's just super obvious and very I probably against the rules, too, honestly. But, you know, I just do a little bit of like you just play the move with confidence and you just get up and go get water. And really just like you do the kind of behavior you would do if you were correct and the tactic was winning and you hadn't then realized that it lost. It's funny because there is usually not a lot of bluffing in chess, but there are those those unique spots. So tell me, you're in your mid-20s right now, and I feel that that's a little bit of a you know, strange age for professional American poker players, right? Like you're in the minority. Most um, American pros are in their thirties now because of the poker boom that happened when you couldn't legally play poker, right? So how do we get more of you? It's for sure the sparsest demographic. All of my friends from poker are either 30-ish or uh, I have like a crew of my Australian friends, shout out to the boys, uh, who are all younger than I am. Uh, well, not all, but uh, a large percentage are younger. Uh, and also they could play poker from 18 online. So it kind of gives them like almost three years of being older in a sense. I don't really notice it anymore. I'll say when I first started out and I didn't know anyone, I did think it was a little bit weird that no one was my age, especially because I was like 23 and everyone was, you know, 29, 30. And I felt more of an age gap. These days, I don't really think about it or notice it as much. But I think there's kind of like a sleeper generation of people who are like 24 to 28 who did watch like i watched chris moneymaker win the main on tv i was eight years old but i watched the whole thing i just watched it at random on espn and there was numbers on the screen i always loved math as a kid so it just sucked me in immediately i thought uh norman chad and lon mccarran were hilarious i mean just really like the whole thing was well put together for my liking. And then I kind of like followed poker on TV on and off, played with my friends a little bit, you know, for no dollars and home games, and then played some $10 home games in high school or whatever. And then once I was 21, met a friend who grinded 2-5 for a living and actually got into poker. So I think the issue with people my age is that it requires a sustained interest in it, even when you couldn't really play. Um, But at the same time, I think there are a lot of people coming from other games who are around 25, 26, 27, who are starting to take a liking to poker. So I think that might be the recruitment avenue. If there's any way to go is like go through esports or, you know, chess or other games like that, where there's infinite 25 year olds. Infinite 25 year olds. Wow. You've played chess at a high level. You've also played esports and poker. What does poker have that other games don't have? Like what is the recruitment tool for poker in your opinion? Uh, money. <laughs> I'm just uh, pretty straightforward about it. Just money. Like what got me when I was in college and my friend introduced me is I 
was going out to LA a lot and I didn't have any money and I just, you know, I was a college student, I was broke and uh, I was like counting cards, um, doing blackjack stuff, crazy variants, made a little bit of money, but just like couldn't keep it up. And I was like, I need a way to make money, but I don't have time to have a job and also school. And a friend of mine was like, oh, if you just learn this super basic strategy I teach you and you just listen to me 100% of the time and never deviate, you can make a few thousand dollars. Uh, he was like pretty realistic about it. And honestly, it's true. A lot of people won't have that success at first because they will deviate. But if you just find someone who's you know to be a profitable professional poker player and you just blindly trust their strategic advice and play super tight at 1-3, you really will just make money. Uh, as long as you have enough discipline to keep that up. And for me, discipline wasn't really the issue. You know, I mean, chess is obviously a long game. You have two six-hour games in the same day, and it's it's just something you get used to, you know. I mean, if you think of the stamina of someone like Fabiano, it's insane. Like, they can just go forever. So I figured, like, oh, I definitely have enough stamina to go drive to the casino, which is 10 minutes from my house in Baltimore, and play 1-3 for a couple of hours. And every time I was up, I would just hit and run. I'd win a buy-in, hit and run, win two buy-ins, hit and run. And I just like built a, a bankroll like that, you know, just very carefully and turned down all marginal situations, literally had a 0% bluff frequency and then eventually taught me how to only bluff with like huge equity combo draws. And, you know, we like slowly added things in, but as boring as it is, it is effective to go about it in that way. And then I think once people make the first, you know, two, $3,000, suddenly it hits them. They're like, whoa, this is a lot of money. It sounds so easy when you say it that way, but I think what you have to understand is that for a lot of people, it's like saying, well, what's the big deal? You can go to the club on a Wednesday night, just have like one drink and like, you know, <laughs> what's the big deal? Whereas like uh, for a lot of people, like being at the poker table and getting a hand with an ace in it, especially if they're just starting, it's like the coach can tell them whatever they want, but it's just not a fit with certain types of minds and dispositions. Yeah, it's definitely true. I always say like nerds uh, and gamers succeed in poker and gamblers do not. Uh, or there's some percentage of the time where people are so good and they're huge gamblers that they make it work. But in general, like coming to poker because you're motivated by gaming and you think the idea of winning a poker tournament would be cool, and then realizing that you can make money from it after the fact can be really effective just because you start to view the game in a different way. Like before I ever played poker live, I already had memorized like my preflop opening ranges because that's the way the game was introduced to me. You know, they're like, "Hey, here's these things. They're called ranges. This is like the basics of poker." I was like, "Cool." I'll, and he's like, "Yeah, just memorize those and read this article about like value betting, and then you can go play." And I was like, "Yeah, great." And I just like read it a bunch of times. And then by the time I played, I just thought that's how poker worked. You know, and then I started to realize at the table, like, "Oh wow, most people." don't start like this. They start because their friends like poker or whatever. They like gambling. You know, maybe they're already into other forms of gambling and they approach it from that angle. And I think that's just very dangerous because that's so far from the reality of what makes a profitable poker player. So less gamble, I think, goes a long way, especially uh, early on. Now, you say you have a, you memorize the grid of preflop hands. This podcast is the grid, of course. Now, do you have a photographic memory? Or are you just talking about like very basic preflop ranges, like deep in a cash game from each position? Yeah, it's definitely true. Okay, okay, because that's not as hard to memorize. I've heard even elite poker players tell me that they sometimes are reviewing things on like the breaks because it's just so vast the number of things to remember in tournaments with all the different possible stack sizes, right? I would say I do have a good memory by nature. Um, and I feel like I've had a decent amount of like memory training in my life as well. And it definitely always served me well in school that if I 
heard something once, I would generally retain it. But I'm, I'm certainly not one of those people with like an instant, you know, photo recall. I have some friends that are like that. My buddy Evan, a lot in this sense, he just sent me simple things to start, you know? It was just like, okay, am I under the gun range? And we're talking like nice and tight. Like I was folding tens under the gun at one point just because I wasn't ready because you're usually gonna get an overcard flop and you're gonna panic, you know, because you don't really know what to do. And second pair is a really easy way to like panic and punt off chips if you're new. So I just like kept it super, super tight. And the way I did is I memorized under the gun and then button and then one of the middle positions. And then you can sort of estimate everything else, which I figured was kind of the way to do it, like a pendulum approach. Like this is my tightest, this is my widest, and then like this is somewhere in the middle. But I didn't know any calling ranges or anything like that. He told me basically just don't call. <laughs> oh my God, I'm, I just got sick. The folding yeah. tents. It's so upsetting. But I understand um, there are different ways to um, pr- approach the, the learning process for sure. Wow. Tens, but tens, such a good hand. I get needled about this a lot, but I really do think it was like very integral into having successful development. But yeah, I mean, I wasn't doing it for long. You know, we're talking for like a week or two weeks. By the end of my first month, I was playing like pretty much standard pre-flop, like tight cash game ranges. So tens got back in there. Yeah, and nines as well, you know, but I I don't think eights and sevens came for for quite some time. That's amazing. You were talking about esports that you play as well and poker and that you picked poker over chess and esports because of money but people talk a lot about these esports competitions where there's like millions of dollars up for grabs so how is there not money in esports there is money in esports there is no money in esports for someone like myself except for maybe streaming because i'm entertaining or something but much like chess or if you want to compare it to a more mainstream sport tennis the money is very heavily concentrated at the top and poker tournaments are distributed like that but poker in general doesn't work like that like a you know the equivalent of like a 1600 elo player as a poker player could make a living playing poker just like being a tight like two five or one three grinder and you know like i played halo when i was young i played halo three and that was probably the game i was best at and even then i i wasn't good enough to make like serious money and then i played uh super smash brothers melee for many years and i love it and i have a lot of friends in the community i love going to tournaments but i mean i'm nowhere near a level where i could actually like turn a profit you know even if i am like a strong player compared to the world population i'm not even top 100 which is still not even enough to like make a living uh at the game so i I think it's just what attracted me to poker is that if you were good but not the absolute world champion you could still actually make a career out of it yeah and i think the hand that you brought onto the grid um with the the fu i'm all in hand certainly uh brought that into play i gotta ask you this and i forgot was he given a penalty for using the f word and i was i was almost a little bit afraid when i heard this hand history that you would somehow only win what was in the pot because he would just get like snap um eliminated uh penalized yeah, no, I, I honestly, like, there's just hundreds and hundreds of tables and, like, the floor barely comes around enough to even make important rulings, let alone something like this. It, it all happened very fast, if that makes sense. It was just kind of like, fuck you, I'm all in. I was like, call. And then he just sort of reluctantly turned over his hand, went forced, and stormed off. I think, like, there's no penalty just because, like, one, I wasn't going to complain. I didn't care. I wasn't going to ask him to get a penalty or anything. Like, I just got the guy to tilt, took his stack, and now I'm going to, like, return to, you know, live in my life and 
sort of diffuse the situation and let him leave the room and then make a joke about it. Like, wow, did, did anybody see that? You know, like, <laughs> I, I kind of can't help myself with the celebration afterwards. So I was like, that was pretty amazing. You know, like he literally had nothing at all. I definitely have had some opponents get penalties. In general, I try not, like if the floor is on the fence, I try and advocate even if my opponent and I are not getting along for them not to get a penalty. I don't want to drive people to be angry. I just want to drive them to make mistakes at poker. And when they get actually angry, it's like, it doesn't feel good. You know, I am trying to have everyone have a good time at the table. I think that's so, so, so important. As you said in the intro, it's all about hoodie, no headphones if you're a young guy. I think that's the secret. Like the headphones are really, sometimes if you're really trying to focus, they're great, but you know, by and large, they're just very antisocial. And I think making poker a fun experience for recreational players is absolutely essential to the health of the ecosystem, honestly. Can you tell me how you would have played that, dare I say, GTO? <laughs> a GTO, I think it's a check back on the flop. I mean, you literally just like block the entire world. And it's not even the kind of board where you like are c-betting 100% of your range button versus big blind anyway. So I think it's like a nice check back on the flop and then probably have to bet small turn and like medium at, at best on the on that brick run out river. I mean, there's really just so little you're hoping to get called by. And the thing is that if he does have a miracle case queen so that you are going to win a lot of chips, they just always raise or they lead turn. They'll let you know at some point. So you're basically targeting like jack X and like under pairs, like sevens and sixes and that kind of stuff. So I think, yeah, you kind of have to check back and then bet small and assess the river. Although you did 4x pre or 5x pre, so his range is going to be like narrower than it usually would be, which is kind of exciting because maybe he's slightly more likely to have something. But you're saying that like with your queen jack specifically, you would check back just because you, you've got the board on lockdown, whereas like if you had other types of queen x, you might bet the flop. I think like even pocket jacks, like jacks full, I'm, I'm betting flop, you know, just like, yeah, much more things to get value from many more combos obviously not against a 5x but if we're talking gto i'm sure i'm never 5xing in this spot but like you know if you have jacks like they have so many random like against a min raise or a 2.5 there's so many random like every junkie suited queen and like queen seven off and queen eight off and all these like random hands where you end up winning a massive pot but then with queen jack it's just like so hard for them to to have the case it just cuts their combos so so drastically it's funny that you mentioned that because I always find it weird when you like study a hand and like the one range is just like completely out of whack, either because you you know your opponent is not going to play theoretical ranges at all, but then you analyze the rest of the hand like it would be played perfectly because it's so rare to actually encounter somebody like that that is going to play like really weird on the flop and pre-flop, but then somehow is going to play like a you know perfect GTO strategy on the turn or the river. It, it is weird, like... The analysis tools for poker are very much only centered around theory versus theory dynamics. And it's kind of up to the person studying to like adjust it manually. But when you do that, you're already inherently trusting your own perception of the situation. So it's kind of this weird catch 22 where you're like, well, theoretically, I should do this. And then you're like, well, I'm 100% sure that X, Y or Z about your opponent's range. But then you're like, well, if I'm so sure, why am I even reviewing this hand in the first place? Yeah, and you you got to be really careful with that too, like this whole like node locking stuff, because I think that if really good players, of course, and really good theoreticians do it quite effectively, but there are so many potential pitfalls that you can go into with that, like these um, game theory tools will tell you like if you don't let somebody check raise or something, then they'll start having the guy leading a bunch, and so. Right. It, it's like you can switch one thing, but then the calculator will switch everything else um, to make them play better. 
right? So then you have to like literally switch every node and you're like, wait, wait a second. Maybe I should just like get a paper and pen out right now. It, it does. It snowballs really fast. <laughs> Like there's only three streets, like how much can it snowball? But it's crazy like how kind of exponential it is. But I think there's certain like situations in live poker against types of recreational players that are really common, like types of mistakes that are very universal. And I think one thing to do, like if you like to do node lock kind of exploitative studying is ask around if you have friends that are strong players. Like, hey, do you guys encounter this kind of mistake a lot? And if every single person is like, oh my God, that's a classic, like, all the idiots are doing that, you know, then then you can sort of confidently be like, okay, this is an actual common mistake I can memorize. But sometimes there's things where you think you see it a lot, but in reality, it's just uh, it's just confirmation bias in, in your hands. Can you give me an example of something where like you, you would notice that like everybody was doing this thing? <laughs> yeah, in general, I like to not say these, but I don't mind giving like one example. Like there are spots where someone will check call flop. Let's say the board is like king, king, nine. And they're like the recreational is defending in the big blind and they check call flop. And then the turn is a brick and they just like lead. Uh, and then they lead again on the river with the same size on the turn. They bet like a quarter pot on the turn and they bet literally the identical bet size on the river. It's always like jack nine off or some like super marginal middle pair hand. Uh, and you can really like exploit that strategy. The only issue is sometimes it induces you to raise a lot and you're like, all right, because I know their range is capped, but then they call anyway. So you have to kind of like decide the person who's doing this to then give up or is this like a station that's just doing this for spaz value and then if you raise won't believe you because the kings are paired and they're like oh that doesn't make any sense um but what you can do it's really nice is you can raise with like queens or aces uh, or jacks for value which is super thin but they turn their hands so face up uh, and you can pick these kind of exploitative small raise sizes that just get them to pay off that's uh, super interesting and i think you really pointed out something important that with exploitative play it's not just about reading somebody's hands it's also about like knowing what they're going to do with x hand and you know they're they're different skill sets right there's always those horrible moments where you are just certain someone's bluffing and you call super light and their bluff beats your hand and you're like it's just like the most devastating thing in the world you're like i just entered this person's mind and dissected their entire thought process only to pay them an extra bet for no reason. Well, anyway, thank you so much for joining us to talk about this key hand. It's great because I feel like we haven't had a lot of like exploitative, like really big exploit hands on the grid yet. So it's definitely super fun. I think one thing that people are starting to realize, but maybe realize a little bit less when there was more like mockery of nerds use solvers until people started to realize that you kind of had to get on the bus, at least to some extent. The idea that even when you're studying exploits, you still are using poker theory, right? Yeah, absolutely. You know, like I went to the Raise Your Edge meetup event this summer uh, with like Ben CB and uh, I was talking to a friend of mine, the German wizard who's also a chess player. I was saying he thinks like, you know, poker is super undeveloped compared to chess just because it's been around much less time. And the way it shows is like how people are like, oh, wow, like you do need the computers after all. Whereas like that's just been a foundational staple of high level chess play for a, a fairly long time at this point, especially at the grandmaster level. You know, it's like as soon as the computers came out, they're like, we need to use these to perfect our play. Whereas at first poker was a little bit more resistant. And now people are realizing like, you know, it, it just helps. Like the more you know concretely, the better you can assess subjective situations. You just get more data. Yeah, and I totally understand the fear because whether it's chess or poker, using computers badly can just make you dumber and less thoughtful. So that's bad, and I, I get it. It's like a really serious concern that some 
coaches and players have that they'll stop thinking for themselves. But hey, I mean, that's kind of like one that is easy to self-monitor. Like if you're not thinking anymore, then you kind of know. Definitely. I, I couldn't agree more. I think it's everyone has to be really careful. Like I never, ever let any of my students for chess or poker or whatever use the computer at first. Like you have to reach a certain level of strength where you know how to sort of like great power comes great responsibility, I guess. You have to use the tools wisely or it can really stunt your growth. I mean, like the worst is if somebody memorizes an opening and then somebody differs and then they still play the line that was supposed to be against the main line. And it's like, well, you could have just won a piece, dude. Yeah, yeah. Literally just hanging right there. And it's like, you know, they're good enough to see it. But it's like the studying actually screwed them because it it gave them permission to turn their brain off. And honestly, as humans, a lot of times that's what we're doing, because why think if you cannot think it's easier to not think? Absolutely. I, I love turning my brain off more than anything. <laughs> it's the best, but it's always the worst. You got to realize that that's our human instinct and then fight it when you're playing a mind sport like poker. So how do we follow your progress? You don't have Twitter, do you? Unfortunately, I really am not a Twitter believer. I know it is the official social media of, uh, of the poker community. Um, I just uh, I've never been much for Twitter, but I'm a big, uh, big Instagram poster. Uh, mostly when I'm traveling for tournaments and stuff. It's just the letter J and my last name, Abadi or Abadi uh, 101. And yeah, that's kind of my main social media. I'm a little bit uh, more dormant these days because we're working on the business, but in uh, in a few months, things will become a lot more front facing there and uh, I'll try and blast it out to the world as much as possible. All right, wonderful. Well, Critical Mass Applications and J Abadi 101 on Instagram. Did I get that right? Yeah, that's perfect. All right, thanks again for talking to us about Queen Jack Suited, clicking off a key hand on the grid. If you liked what you heard, please subscribe and write a review. Your subscriptions, reviews, shares on social media truly helps motivate me as the quest for 169 intensifies. Also find me at US Chess Women, where I host another podcast, Ladies Night, and follow updates on the grid at Jen Shahadi on Twitter and Instagram. No one ever bust. They say I'm lucky. Oh no, no need to bluff. With all the cheap tricks up my sleeve. Yeah, I got talent.